Good morning. <laughs> it's hard not to get pumped up after a video like that, isn't it? I love that. I hope that one doesn't get old. We got, we got a long time to go in our series on Romans, and we're just getting started. So we'll have to see if that gets old or not. But for now, it's not. That's awesome. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're just a couple of weeks into this series, the study that we're doing in the book of Romans. So if you're new with us, you're here at a great time. Um, unfortunately, last week we had to start off with a little bit of bad news, even though the series is called The Good News. Got to start with the bad news. We got a little bit more of that today, but that's okay. All right? That's okay. We're going to frame all of this in light of the good news. So I'm glad that you are here with us. And one of the things I love about doing a study like this where we are walking through a book, it's my favorite thing for us to do as a church, by the way. Um, Part of that might be a little bit selfish because from preaching, I don't have to think about what's coming next. (laughs) Just go to the next passage of Scripture, which is fantastic. And I don't have to come up with any ideas because the Scripture comes up with all. Of it. And so we're just pulling out of it. Um, but one of the things I love about doing a series like this is that um, we get to spend a lot of time really digging into the context of the book that we're studying. So in this case, it's Romans, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians who are in Rome. And the Christians in Rome don't have a church per se. It's not been established yet as a large group meeting together. These are small groups of Christians that are meeting in house churches or apartment churches around the city. And Paul knows a bunch of them, but he's never been there. And it's always fascinating when you have the time and take the time to teach through a letter or a book, and we can uh, really... um, immerse ourselves in what's going on with them at that time. And when we really understand what's going on with them at that time, then it makes it much easier to contextualize to today and understand what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to respond to that. And so that's my favorite part about it. And I love researching and getting into this and talking about it. And I'm afraid at times, maybe I talk about it a little too much. All right. (laughs) Like I love the history and all of that. And there are times where Jess, my wife, who isn't in here at the moment, she's getting some things ready for later today. Uh, but she'll look at me and she'll be like, mm-hmm. like you, gotta, you can picture her doing that, right? Be like, it's time to move on. It's time to move on. Enough there. But it's so fun and interesting. And then, oh, you're up there. <laughs> hey. Um, uh, <laughs> I didn't say anything I regret. All right. It's true, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, so you got to, anyway, I love that stuff. And, uh, and I, I feel like I, I spent half of the week even just preparing, studying things that we never actually say. Um, and so that's one of the things I love about groups meeting during the week and doing the sermon-based studies. You can get more into some of this stuff and research that on your own. But um, it's critical to remember when we're reading in Scripture that these are real people in a real place at a real time. Uh, sometimes we can turn Scripture into fairy tales. They be, people become characters of people. But th- Paul's a real guy, and he has, he's a Roman citizen, even though he hasn't lived there in a long time. He knows some of the people. They have relationships just like you and I would have relationships. You have a relationship with the person down the row from you. And so there are all these connections, and they're living in a real world. It's not, this is not, you know, the kingdom of Narnia. It's, this, is, this is a real world, real people. And, and the people he's writing to are surrounded by all kinds of different influences. They have influencers then, just like we have influencers now. People with lots of different ideologies. Now, they didn't have the sort of, uh, the, um, 
the mass of influence that we have today. They didn't have social media, right? They didn't have podcasts. We have so many different ideas coming at us from so many different channels, and people can pick who influences them from all over the place. And it's wild in the world that we live in. I mean, my goodness. If you had told me in 2003 that 20 years from then, the most influential podcast in America would be hosted by the host of Fear Factor, Okay, Joe Rogan Experience is the most listened to podcast in the entire country. If you had told me that the host of Fear Factor was going to be one of the most influential people in our society, first I would have said, what's a podcast? (laughs) And second, I would have said, is it the tribulation? Like, I need to know what is going on that that's the case. We have influencers coming from all over the place, and tons of different people can get platforms, right? Well, they had the same thing, but maybe just different. They had teachers. They had influencers. They had philosophers. Remember that, that who Paul is talking to in Rome, they've just, they're, this is the start of the Roman Empire. This is where the Roman Empire is starting to take off. They're heavily influenced by the Greek and Greek, Greeks and Greek philosophy. That is what people have been steeped in in Rome and the outlying areas, and Paul knows that. He's in the middle of it. And so part of what we're going to read today as we get to Romans chapter 2, and you can start turning there if you have your Bibles, part of what we're going to be reading today I think speaks directly to some of that philosophy and influence that's coming from outside of the church or outside of their religion and some of it from inside. But it's important to understand these people, they're hearing all these different ideas and they're comparing them and weighing them and Paul's bringing a new idea to a lot of them and they have to decide whether they're going to listen to that and what it means and how it interacts or looks like or doesn't look like all these other things they've been told and taught. And so some of their, they have some influencers maybe in their church or at least around their churches that would have looked at what we read last week Last week, we, he, said, um, he said, you know, that man as a whole had essentially turned its back on God. That even though he is obvious and we can look at creation and see that God is obvious and that his principles are true and universal, and we can see that in creation, man chose the creation over the creator. Man chose what they could see over what was true. And they worshiped and served created things, creeping things and things with four legs and people. Right? So man made this choice, and because of that, delved into all kinds of sins, and he gives a whole list of sins that to him are very, very obvious, and obvious even in creation. And he goes through this whole list of all of these things, but he understands that there's a group of people, maybe in these little house churches in Rome for sure, that would read that, hear that, and they would say, yeah, you're right, Paul, that's terrible, those people are terrible, but I don't do that. I'm good, I'm moral, I'm virtuous. And so, yes, I see that in them, but it doesn't apply to me because I'm a good person. Well, last week we had to share the the bad news first. And today we're going to share some, well, I hate to say it, but bad news for good people. People that would look and say, yeah, I see that, that's horrible, but that's not me. All right, let's start reading in Romans chapter 2. And uh, we're going we're gonna to take it in pieces. We're going to go through chapter 11 today. Um, we're going to take it in a few pieces and discuss it as we go. All right, Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. So this is the person who's judging other people's sin. For in whatever you judge another, 
you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So if I can pause for a second. So what he's saying is God's judgment of these things is true. Your judgment of them is not because you do the same stuff. Verse 3. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, who is Paul talking about here? He doesn't say specifically. Obviously, it's anybody who's judging. But I think there are two groups of people that this would apply directly to who are living in Rome and maybe are a part of these house churches in Rome. Let's talk about those two groups for a minute because I think it, it, it helps this come out and come to life and understand the real issues of why Paul is writing this. And then maybe we can think about people today who might apply those same sort of ideas to themselves. All right, the first group that I think he is talking to are what I'm going to call Greek moralists. Greek moralists. These would be non-religious people in a Jewish or, or Christian sense but they would be people who are holding to the predominant philosophical understanding of the time. And when Paul is writing this, the predominant Greek philosophy is something called Stoicism, Stoics. What the Stoics believed was that the only thing that really mattered was what you did. The internal wasn't as important. What mattered was what you did, and that what you did was in in accordance with creation or the world around them, the natural world. They might not say creation, right? That what you did is in accordance with nature. So a Stoic might read what Paul said last week, that the, 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 God, the evidence of God is, is all around you. You can see it in creation, and people rejected that, and so here are all the sins and the things that they've done wrong, and so they will, that incurs the wrath of God. And a Stoic would have said, well, I don't know about God creating it, but the rest of that I agree with. And I'm not like that. Because I live a virtuous life. They believed that virtue was the only true good and vice was the only true bad. So it was about what you did. And Paul knows this. He knows this is a mentality that a lot of the people in the church have grown up, these people in these churches have grown up being taught, that that explicitly has been taught to them. The, the leading Stoic philosopher at the time of Paul was a man named Seneca. You may have heard of him. Um, if you're from the, the Finger Lakes region of New York like I am, you've probably heard of Seneca Lake or the Seneca Nation, all right? Has nothing to do with the guy, with this guy, okay? <laughs> I wanted it to. I researched it all week long. I was like, tell me the Seneca Nation, the name of this, this Native American tribe comes from this guy because the Seneca Nation started in my hometown, Canandaigua, New York. All right, so I really wanted that to be true, but it's not. Anyway, he's a, he was the predominant uh, Stoic philosopher of the time. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew who Seneca was. And uh, uh, there are rumors or stories that Paul and Seneca had a relationship with each other, that they were friends. There was a, a letter that popped up in medieval times, or yeah, medieval times, uh, from Paul to Seneca. Now, it was, pr- it was proven to be inauthentic, so it didn't really happen. But nevertheless, there is suspicion that Paul and Seneca had a relationship with each other, that Paul was very familiar with Stoic philosophy and with Seneca specifically. Um, and uh, it wouldn't be surprising, based on what we read in Scripture, if that were true. 
okay? Um, so this little, I want to tell you a story. This is so cool. Um, this is for all the history nerds in the, in the room <laughs> like me who love looking into this stuff. All right, really cool. In Acts chapter 17, we're told that Paul, uh, he is in the middle of his second missionary journey. All right, in scripture, we have three missionary journeys recorded for Paul. He's in the middle of the second one. In Acts chapter 17, he goes to Athens, Athens, Greece. And when Paul is in Athens, he uh, has a, a run-in with Stoic philosophers. It tells us that specifically, that he uh, has a conversation with the Stoic philosophers. He's trying to get them to uh, understand who Jesus was and accept him. And he tells them, he says, you know, I saw this, this tomb or this, this, this idol uh, to an uh, unknown God. Let me tell you who that God is. All right, and then he proceeds to share the gospel with them. And the, it's to the Stoics that he does that in Acts chapter 17. Then in Acts chapter 18, he moves from Athens and he goes to Corinth. All right, and while he's in Corinth, he's there for at least a year and a half. And after he's been there about a year and a half, things are, he's, he's reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the religious leaders. He's talking with Stoic philosophers. He's, he's interacting and sharing the gospel with the city. And uh, things start to boil up. They start to get heated in Corinth. And Paul's a little concerned about his safety. God comes to him in a vision, in a dream, and he says, Paul, don't be afraid. You're not going to be harmed. He says, I have many men in this city. That's what he says. I have many men in this city. And so Paul knows he's going to be protected. Well, shortly thereafter, uh, things start to, again, they start to boil up and boil over. And the Jewish leader at, in town, his name is Sosothenes, the Jewish leader in town takes Paul by force and takes him to the Roman governor, the senator in Corinth, and is a man named Gallion. And so he takes, this is all recorded in Acts chapter 18. They take Paul in front of Gallion, and the, the, the um, Sosothenes says, this man has been teaching people to disobey the law. And Gallion hears it, and then he responds. And Paul's about to defend himself, but Gallion cuts him off and doesn't let Paul defend himself. And Gallion says, wait a second. You're telling me that he's only been using words. He's only been speaking these things to people. He hasn't done anything immoral or lewd or anything like that. And they say, no. And Galleon says, well, then I have nothing to say about this. Why? Well, because Galleon was a Stoic, all right? And interestingly, Galleon was Seneca's brother, all right? So Galleon says, I have nothing to say about this. He releases Paul, and then the Greeks in the court beat Sosothenes. So that's, that's another part of the story for bringing this false accusation. And it says that Paul stayed there a good while longer. And so he stayed there under the protection of Galleon. He was, Paul experienced this Stoic philosophy. He benefited from it in this case, and he was immersed in it. Well, he leaves Corinth and, uh, and, and returns on his journey. Eventually, he goes on his third missionary journey. And on his third missionary journey, he returns to Corinth again and spends a few months there over the winter of 57 uh, into 58 AD. And he stays there for three months under the protection again of Galleon, the governor of Corinth. And he writes this letter. This is when he writes Romans. So he is in and around this Stoic philosophy. 
And somebody who has been steeped in this kind of thinking would read what he said in chapter one, what we have is chapter one, and they would go, yes, absolutely. I don't know about the God thing, but everything else, yes, absolutely. It is obvious in nature, and it is wrong to behave in that way, but I don't do that. And so Paul's argument to them is, yes, you do. Maybe not the same things, but the same things. Seneca was notoriously criticized for being a hypocrite, for for telling people to do these things and not doing them himself. So that's the Greek moralists. I think the second group of people that he is addressing and would hear this very clearly is the Jewish moralists. These would be Jews in Rome or in these churches or people who are historically Jewish who thought that by keeping the law, they could be good enough, that that's the way that they were going to be saved. And they would look at people and say, yeah, all those people in chapter one, those are lawbreakers, but I'm a law keeper. It reminds me of an interaction that Jesus had. He had it in, uh, I want to get the location right, Luke chapter 10, where Jesus was teaching and a young man, a very rich, young, prominent man came to him and said, teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? We often call this guy the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you've read the law. You know what it says. What do you think? And the man said, well, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same things that Jesus boiled the law down to. And so Jesus said, that's right. Do that and you will live. And the young man said, well, that's great because I've been doing all of that since I was a kid. (laughs) So I got it. (laughs) And Jesus said, no, no. What I want you to do is go take all that you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. And the man walked away sad because he had a lot of stuff and he didn't want to do it. Why did that happen? Because Jesus needed to prove to him and to everyone else around them, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't keep the law so perfectly that you could earn salvation. You can't be so virtuous and so beautiful on the outside or so pure on the outside that you could earn your way to God. You can't do it. After Jesus had the interaction with the, um, the, the rich young ruler, his disciples then said, well, Jesus, what, what in the world? You know, how does anybody... How, do, how could anybody do it? And Jesus said, it's, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, which, by the way, is impossible. A camel can't go through an eye of a needle, right? Uh, you know, some people, like, the people, people try to take that story and do all kinds of stuff with it. It's supposed to be ridiculous, okay? The point is a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. And they say, well, then, if it, then, then how would that be possible? And, and, and Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The point is that there is no way for us to get to to be justified before God on our own. And and, and Paul, when he's writing this, he needs to hit everybody. He's got to hit everybody. So that there's nobody that can stand on a pedestal and look down and say that I am in a position to judge someone else. Because I have kept the law. I've been virtuous. I have done this while you have done that. So nobody belongs in that position. Not a single person. You do the same things. You are in no position to judge because you yourself are guilty. Your judgment is self-incriminating. 
It's like the old phrase, right? Every time you point, there's three fingers pointing back at you, right? And then one weird thumb, you know, there's a digit unaccounted for in that, in that phrase, but, you know, that, you, that our judgment is self-incriminating. It's true. And Paul is not, he's not outlining all of these sins in Romans chapter 1 to give anyone the moral high ground. He's he's not condemning particular sins. He's establishing the depravity of all mankind. That all of us have done this, and none of us stand in a position to judge because none of us are pure and none of us are holy. None of us have kept the law perfectly or been virtuous. There's only been one who has, and that's Jesus himself. And so none of us belong in a position to judge. Now, this is not, uh, is, I want to be clear, this is not a prohibition from Paul on lovingly calling out someone's sin. We need to do that if we love people and care for them. But judgment is a mentality. Judgment comes from a position of superiority. And what he is saying is none of us belong in that position. All right, let's keep reading. Um, verse 4. I said, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? And actually, before we do this, just real quickly, why do we judge people? Why do we do that? More often than not, the reason that we do it is because we feel somehow like if we point out their sin or put them in their place, it somehow changes our place or our position. Somehow, by, 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 by look, uh, how terrible those people are, that somehow in my mind that makes me better, like, that if, that if I point out your badness, it makes me more good? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. We, we don't live or operate by comparison. In our head we do, but not in reality. And so, he said, you know, you think you practice, you're doing the same things. You think you're going to escape the judgment of God? You think if you point the finger enough, God's going to be like, yeah, that's right. That's my guy. <laughs> that's my girl. You know, I'm not going to worry about all that stuff that you think and do and, and all, you know, the, the thoughts that you have or the behavior that you have or the past that you have or whatever. You know, you're, you're doing a good job of, of my job. You know, no, he's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. All right, verse four. Let's keep reading. <clears throat> or do you despise? the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. The point he's trying to, he's casting a wider and wider and wider net here. He's trying to catch everybody and say, when you look at the goodness of God, it should lead you to recognize the badness of John. But not so that you can judge other people, not so that you can put yourself on a pedestal, but, but to lead you to this, God's patience, his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering, so that it can lead you to repentance. So that you and I can recognize our own failure and recognize that we have turned our back on God. And change. Not to judge, but to change. Not to, not to stand on a pedestal of moral superiority. Okay, it's a, the slippery slope of moral superiority. It's a precarious place to stand and judge. None of us belongs there. None of us is good enough. And, and that's what somebody who judges does. They draw a line. 
they draw a line and they say, I'm on this side of the line and you're on that side of the line. I'm in, I'm good enough, and you're out, you're not. The problem we have is, where is that line actually? Because we, 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 draw, we draw that line arbitrarily. You know, where, where do we draw that line? It's a, it's a little like this question, okay? Um, I'm from, I told you this earlier, but I'm from New York. That's where I grew up. I was there all the way through high school and then in Pittsburgh for about four years for college and then down here. But when I got here, I was not from here, all right? Not from the South. I'm not from the South. I'm from the North. New York is decidedly the North, okay? But when I got down here, I realized that where the South begins is very subjective, it seems. Because you ask someone, you know, like, you'll be talking about this. Where are you from? You know, I'm from the South. Be like, where are you from? They're like, I'm from from Virginia, right? And someone from North Carolina is like, that's not the South. It's not. You know, and then you're talking to someone from South Carolina, and uh, and you're they're like, "Where are you from?" Well, I'm from the South. Where are you from? I'm from North Carolina. They're like, "That's not the South." <laughs> it says North in the name, you know. <laughs> and then you go to Georgia. <laughs> you go to Georgia, and you have this conversation, and they meet someone from South Carolina. They're like, I, "You're not from the South." The the South begins just north of wherever you grew up. That's what I found out. All right, it's, it's very subjective. It's it's a you know. I mean, I know we have the Mason-Dixon line or whatever, but, like, it seems like that's what we do with morality. We arbitrarily draw a line in the sand just south of wherever we are. And we're like, everyone who's better than me is good, and everybody who's worse than me is bad. Who are we to draw that line? Here's the bad news. That line ain't anywhere near me. It's way north of me. The line in the sand is perfection, and there's not a single one of us that can reach it. Not by any self-effort, not by any work, none. So who are we to judge? This is beautifully, you're going to talk more in depth about this whole interaction. It's in John chapter 8. You're going to talk about in your groups this week about this. But um, Jesus is is teaching, and um, and, uh, the, the religious leaders bring a woman to him. And this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. There's no question of whether she's guilty or not. She was caught in the act. And they bring this woman to Jesus, and they say, what should we do with her? Because the law says we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? And now they're trying to trick Jesus. That's the whole thing that's happening. They're trying to get him to either go against the law or go against what he had been teaching. And he rides the line beautifully because he just bends down and starts drawing in the dirt. And right before he did that, he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he bends down into the dirt and he starts drawing. And by the time he's done drawing, whatever it is he's drawing, we don't know. Whatever he's, whenever he's done, he looks up and everybody's left except the woman. And he said, where are your accusers? <laughs> she says, they've left. He says, well, then I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And he says that a lot to people. And you're going to talk, like I said, in your groups more about exactly what all the aspects of that and the religious leaders and the woman and Jesus and why they all did what they did. But the point is, the line is so far above where anyone of, any of us could reach. It's like, 
it's like the people who make the analogy of a mountain, God's at the top of the mountain, and all these religions of the world are all trying to climb up, and they're just going up different sides of the mountain, but they're all going to the same place. The problem is none of us can get there. None of us can reach the top. And Paul, with his readers, he needs to just kill the idea that you can. Whether it's, a, whether it's a Greek moralist that thinks that virtue can get them there or whether it's a Jewish moralist that thinks the law can get them there. Whether it's somebody in Rowan County, North Carolina, who thinks that charitable contributions can get them there or going to church every week can get them there or thinks that serving in a, a nonprofit in the community can get them there, or being kind and not honking at people in traffic can get them there, or not cursing can get them there, or whatever it is. person, the moralist today, who thinks that they can make it there through their own self-effort, can't do it. The moralist today who puts themselves on a pedestal and points at other people and says, you're bad. Not in a loving, gracious, discipleship-oriented way, but in a judgmental, arrogant, prideful way to put themselves in the seat they don't belong in, that they can't earn. And we need to know, we need to know that it's not possible and that we are in no position to throw stones. What does that lead to? Let's keep reading. Verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He said, you pointing the finger, you are not gathering up for yourself anything more than wrath, anything more than the fact that your sin is known. Verse 6, who, God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey right, unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. And some, this could be a little bit confusing where you would read this and think that what Paul is saying is that uh, someone could earn their way. That if somebody, if somebody continued by patient continuance in doing good w- would seek glory, honor, and immortality, that they would be okay. But we know that Paul's not saying that you could earn your way into heaven because he's going to be real clear about it later in the letter. And we're not to just read the letter in little pieces, but as a whole, Paul is not saying that they're earning their way. I think what Paul is doing is giving a hypothetical to say, if someone could patiently endure in all of these things, then yes. But he's going to make it really clear that we can't, that we can't. He says in Galatians, I think, uh, uh, oh, we're going we're to get to that in just a minute, all right? He says, uh, he says essentially people get what they deserve. Now, that's, a, that's a, an idea that resonates with most of us. It just certainly would have resonated with the Stoics. 
He said, yes, you, if you want what you deserve, you will get what you deserve. But you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it. Because none of us deserve the glory of God. None of us deserve honor in his name. None of us deserve that. And he's, he says, he said, in accordance with the, the, your unrighteousness and impenitence, he said, if that's what you want, if you won't turn to him, if you won't recognize him, if you're just going to stand on your own works and then judge others, if you want to be judged based on your works, then you get what you want. He'll judge you based on your works. But you don't want that. <laughs> you don't want that because we can't stand up to it. God's judgment is impartial. It doesn't matter in this case whether you're a Greek or whether you're a Jew. He's setting them up. And he does this often in the book of Romans. He's setting them up to ask some questions. He's not done with his idea. He's got a whole letter to finish. He's setting up to ask some questions. Well, then who can? Who, who can be good enough? Who, who is allowed to judge? How can I receive peace and eternal life? If, if it isn't by what I do, does what I do even matter? He's going to address all of that as we move on in Romans. We may be moral at times, but we do not and cannot do it all the time. Which is why we are not righteous, not a single one of us. Which is why we need the one who is righteous. Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever lived, fully God and fully man, the only person who ever lived and kept the law perfectly. That line of perfection, he's above it. And there's no way for us to cross it other than for us to put our faith and trust in him for salvation. Because he gave his life on the cross. He gave his, his body and his blood in our place. And if we put our trust in Jesus for salvation, he told us this, if we put our faith and trust in him for salvation, then we will be saved. But there's no other way for us to do it. We can't climb the mountain. Jesus came down to get us. And so we have to accept him. We have to receive him. We have to believe in him and trust him for salvation. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who we are. We're not righteous. It doesn't matter whether we're a Jew or a Greek or an American. It doesn't matter whether we're a man, a woman, an adult, a child, whether a teacher, a machinist, an attorney, an electrician, a hedge fund manager, a Burger King manager. It doesn't matter. We are all unrighteous. And we don't stand in a place to judge, but God does judge rightly. And he has said that we can have salvation in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone because he has met the standard. And so we need to put our faith and trust in him. Paul says in Galatians, if the law can't get us there, this is what he says in verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could, give, be, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So he's saying if a law could have been given that people could have kept, and that's how you were righteous before God, that's what he would have done. But obviously it can't. Verse 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so what Paul is, is, is writing and what he's saying, what, what needs to happen as we're reading this is that conviction 
needs to fall on the unrighteous because of God's impartial judgment. And conviction needs to fall on the self-righteous because of God's impartial judgment. And we all need to understand that we're in the same boat. That humanity has failed God and turned its back on him. That we are born with an attitude of sin and that we have sinned over and over and over and over again. And the punishment for that is the wrath of God. But, but, if we put our faith in Jesus for salvation, we can be saved. And that's it. And then we need to learn how to live in a way that is consistent with him. And so as we go through the book of Romans, he's going to continue to unfold the case for salvation in the gospel, but he's also going to talk about how we walk in this, how we walk in the good news, how it changes us every single day. And I know when we read this, it, it, it is conviction, and, and it can feel heavy, but I don't want it to feel heavy. It shouldn't feel heavy. Because we read this, you, most if not all of you, read this as saved people who have been delivered from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. And so the weight that this places on us, the weight that it places on you and me, shouldn't be for us because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's going to say that later in the letter. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But we need to look at the people around us in our life that we love and care about and deal with every single day and look at them not with judgment, but with compassion. Because there are people around us who don't have the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so they may be good people. They may be people who, when you look at, just, just seem like the most moral, ethical, virtuous, pure people you've ever seen in your entire life. But if they haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, they are sitting under the wrath of God. And if we love them, we will help them. Not judging, not pointing a finger, not condemning, not looking down on, but pulling in and saying, I have this incredible news, this incredible faith that I am saved not by what I do, but by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and he wants to save you the same way. And so I want to encourage you as we, as we look in light of this to not only think about yourself and make sure that you haven't slid, slid into a judgmental position with a group of people or with somebody in your life, but also to look at this in light of the people around us that we love and care about, in some cases are responsible for protecting, and to realize the greatest protection that we could give them, the greatest love we could show them would be to share our faith with them in a side-by-side manner. And as we continue in the book of Romans, we're going to continue, and Paul's going to begin shifting away from the bad news to the good news. And so thankfully, the tone of these is going to change just a little bit as we continue through the study. But I want you to really soak on that this week, the goodness of God, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and the joy that we have as well. 
And so um, we're going to sing one more song today before we go, but I want to take a moment to pray before we do that and uh, let this settle into our hearts and minds as we walk more closely with him. Father, we come to you right now and want you to know that we love you. Uh, Forgive us if we've ever taken a position of judgment, if we've ever uh, arrogantly and unknowingly in some cases put ourselves where you belong. Your judgment is right and it's true. And we trust you and we trust it. And we know that that judgment is that all of us have sinned. All of us have failed you. There's no one who is righteous. There's no one who's escaped this. There's nobody who's been good enough. There's nobody who's followed enough rules or given enough money or helped enough people to absolve themselves or immune themselves from this judgment. God, we thank you that even though that sounds like bad news, it's not bad news. There is good news. The good news is that you didn't leave us in it. You didn't cast us off. You didn't write us off. You are merciful and you are gracious. And so you made a way You sent your son, Jesus, to come and to do what we could not do, to live without sin. And then to give himself as a sinless, pure, righteous sacrifice in our place on the cross. And his offer, your offer, is that us, unrighteous, unholy, ungodly people can trust in him for salvation can believe in him for salvation and we can receive the righteousness of Christ what an unbelievable gift God we do not deserve it there's not a single one of us that deserves it or has earned it it is only by your grace and so we receive it with open arms open hearts Jesus we trust you for salvation not ourselves we know that you are the son of God not only crucified, but resurrected on the third day, alive and well. And we know that just as you have been raised, we too are raised. We too have eternal life with you and in you. And so God, no glory to us, all glory to you. You are good and you are loving and you are merciful and you are gracious and you are kind and you are patient. And I pray that there's someone in this room that you don't have to wait on any longer. And that today they trust you. God, remove us from our pedestals and place us where we belong, shoulder to shoulder. 
not standing in judgment of one another. That's your job. But helping each other. Caring for one another. Serving each other. Loving each other. Sacrificing for each other. So that together, we can walk with you. Thank you for the hope that we have to know, Jesus, that you're returning and we're waiting on that day. Let it be today. That you are returning to establish your kingdom and we get to be a part. And so, Jesus, today, even though we've spent time talking about our sin and our failure and the fact that it catches all of us, Don't let that weigh us down today. Lift us up. Encourage us to know that we have life as you have life. But only in you and only in your name. So this day, this day in front of us, these opportunities in front of us, these are yours. And we offer them to you as we walk in hope and we walk in joy to serve and honor you, our God, our Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.